Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, James, and today I'm bringing in a paper about the sound of meteors. Ooh, I am your other host, Charlie. I have not read this paper, so I'm going to be asking James a lot of questions. Charlie and I are both PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone who wants to learn about the discoveries that affect us all. We are the Paper Boys. All right, well, first of all, huge shout out to Dammit Eugene for making that theme song for us. Go check out his stuff on SoundCloud. Fantastic musician. Actually, James, I don't know if you saw, he released a song inspired by our Saturn episode with the whistling plasma waves. I love it. Dammit Eugene did a great job. Really talented musician. You should definitely check out his work. Check him out on Twitter. Out, of, out of this world, really. It's out of this world. So today, James, you said you have a paper about hearing meteors, which sounds strange to me because. I've never heard a meteor. I've, I've seen a couple, but... Yeah, so with a couple meteor showers coming up in October and November, I was getting curious. I love meteor showers. It's a great time to go camping and to actually, you know, just see one of these amazing sites that we actually have the chance to see, sort of like realize our place in the universe. I think it's fun. Very, You're a very deep guy, James. What can I say? It's, uh, I don't have a good reason. <laughs> it's just fun. It's fun. It's That's an a good excuse to go camping, right? Exactly. And so I was looking it up. So there's the Orionids and the Leonids coming up. And then it brought me back a couple of years ago when in 2016, I think for the Perseid meteor shower, which usually happens in August, I was out camping. I was in the desert visiting my family in Arizona and I had like one evening free. So I went and I took my hammock and I went camping in the desert. It was dark. It was like away from the city lights. So it was perfect for actually like looking at the stars and seeing Perseids. But one thing that was crazy, at like 3 a.m., I probably saw the biggest meteor I've ever seen in my life. Okay. It was huge. It struck across the sky for what felt like probably 10 seconds. Realistically, it was maybe like three seconds, but... Oh, that, there's a very big difference between three and 10, James. What did <laughs> it, it felt like hours. <laughs> yeah. Did it, uh, did it light everything up? I thought so. Yeah. I mean, it's 3 a.m., so who knows how good my memory was at the time, but I, it, it was very bright and it long duration in the sky you could still see the smoke in the sky wow. afterwards and the thing that was crazy about it for me is that i distinctly remembered hearing it burning like a sizzling sound what? as it entered into the atmosphere burning like while it exploded yeah like imagine well, on new year's you light a sparkler and there's that slight hissing sound oh, like a crackling and crackling yeah that's wild. Wait, so was this something that's been in the news recently or that you found some articles about that people have been talking about? Or is this just an experience you've had? Yeah, so I have heard about this recently in Science News, specifically on the site Live Science and a, a few other more science-geared sites, less like very, very popular news media. But on Live Science, they published an article recently, Can You Hear a Meteor in preparation for the Perseids late this summer? Oh, that's usually in August, right? in August. So before people were getting ready to read it, they published this and I found the article 
And it was interesting what I found. What did you find? <laughs> what did they say in this article? So apparently I am not the first person to have ever heard of Meteor. Okay. Sadly, I thought I was, you know, going to set some record or something. That is not the case. Honestly, that's not the kind of thing you want to be the only person who's heard, because that probably means you imagined it. And that is what many people have said for centuries. Really? For centuries. Yeah, millennia, actually. Wait, so people have been hearing these for a long time. Yep. And so there are historical records, as I started diving into this, of the old Chinese dynasties. I forget the exact years. I apologize. But of people describing these meteors. They didn't really know they were meteors at the time. But they saw something entering into the atmosphere. And they heard a hissing sound. Older cultures, we're talking over a thousand years ago, described it more as like magical dragons or beasts coming into the oh, earth. Wow. Wait, so backing even more up. A meteor is literally it's a space rock. A space rock, yep. comes into Earth's atmosphere, and when it hits the air, it's going so fast, and the air becomes so thick, so fast, that it heats it up, and the thing, like, disintegrates in a big fireball. Exactly. And that's what you see. But these people, before they really knew about all these other objects out in space, maybe... what they So they thought that these were dragons? Did they think that they were coming from outer space? Like, what? I don't even think they understood... I don't think they had the concept of, like, where Earth was in the universe... Okay. That we do in modern times. You know, it was different by culture, but there are accounts of this in China, in the Middle East, in Europe for many, many centuries. Honestly, it's probably even more believable to them back then to say, I heard this thing than it is to us now that we actually know what it is. Yeah, because you it gives you sort of that false sense of security and knowing what it is. Right. Well, we know it's a rock coming through the atmosphere. You couldn't have heard it because it's so far away and so small. Exactly. So it took until really the 18th century for the British astronomer Edmund Halley to go through and make the calculation. And I'm not sure exactly how he knew how far the meteors were from the surface of the Earth, but roughly space starts at about 60 miles from Earth's surface. 100 kilometers is sort of like the limit. So that's when you get the edge of the atmosphere. So roughly if you say between 60 to 100 miles, these rocks from space start to burn up and you take the speed of sound, which is about 700 odd miles per hour, It would take more than a couple of seconds for the sound from that meteor to reach you, at which point it would have already disappeared. Yeah, well, and it's if it's that far away, think of just being at your house and something exploding 60 miles away or 100 miles away. How big would that explosion have to be for you to hear it that far away? It would have to be huge. Right. And And these are little rocks. I doubt that they could make something that powerful, right? They give off a lot of energy. Some estimates are in the gigawatts. We're talking back to the future levels of energy. (laughs) 8.83 gigawatts or I don't know, whatever they say. Yeah, you charge up your flux capacitor and you might get something similar. Okay. Joking aside. Wait, gigajoules? Gigawatts of instantaneous power. Gotcha. Over the duration of it burning up. Gotcha. So they're giving off a huge amount of energy in a very short amount of time. Yes. That's kind of what I get from that. Yeah. Okay. So it's giving up a lot of power, and so you would get some sort of pressure wave. But realistically, starting with Edmund Halley's analysis in the 18th century, people had a hard time explaining these reports of hearing a meteor because it's been reported. I mean, there's actual documented evidence from China in 817 AD, like we were talking about. But then over the course of the centuries, more recently, like in the 19th century, there were more widespread reports as documentation got better. Yet, one of the big issues was... Wait, is there like one good example of this happening or these super unrelated 
incidents. Are there any where there are multiple reports? There have been multiple reports in history, especially in England. It seems like the documentation was really good. These are through the 18th century. But there hasn't been like one meteor sighting where everyone or a lot of different people heard the same one. Well, so then what really sparked modern research into it and the main paper that I'll be presenting is that in 1978, there was a large fireball across New South, South Wales in Australia. Oh. And there were multiple reported sightings because it was so big. I believe it caused like traffic accidents or like... Really? Minor things like that. Yeah. There were multiple reports across the southeastern coast of Australia. And so this astronomer and researcher at the time, Colin Kie, I believe it is, K-E-A-Y. Okay of Newcastle University at New South Wales, Australia. Okay. He compiled the reports and started looking, and he found multiple reports of people hearing the sound. Really? Of this one fireball? Of this one fireball. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, and he started wondering what the mechanism was. Was he kind of laughed at for looking into this as a serious research prospect? Um, I mean, <laughs> I know you weren't there, so you probably don't know, but... I don't know specifically. However, in the past, from what I've read about it historically, people have attributed this at times to a psychological effect. If you see something bright and shimmering, maybe you could think in your mind that it's you create the sound in your mind. Okay, so maybe Colin Kie is one of the first to take people very seriously as a scientist at their word that they've heard something. The first to do so seriously... I should I should back up and say as a hard scientist, not a social scientist. I, I don't mean to imply that psychologists are not scientists. <laughs> no, no, no. I, yeah. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Not so, taking pot shots here. So there was, there was an account of this, I think, in the 18th century in England. Someone saw this and saw multiple accounts of people saying that they had heard it. However, you have to remember that this is a time before they've come up uh, with electromagnetic theory. It would be 100 years before Hertz even found out that they're electromagnetic waves. Oh, wow. And so their knowledge of physics wasn't even enough to try to come up with some sort of explanation. All they knew was that from Edmund Halley's equations that it couldn't be a sound wave. Okay, wait. So are you starting to imply here that electromagnetic, sorry, electromagnetic waves have something to do with this? So that's what Kie gets into his article um, that was published in Nature in June of 1980. And this is for analysis two years prior on the New South Wales fireball. Okay, so I mean, this must have been a big deal. Nature is arguably the biggest science journal that there is. Yeah. Or at least one of them. Yep. So if he's getting published there with this work, people must have been taking him seriously. People were taking him seriously, and he came up with this new field of electrophonics. Yeah. Electrophonics? Like yeah. electricity and sound? Is that mm -hmm. some sort of com combined word? Yeah, the idea that through electromagnetic radiation, you could create sound. Oh, okay. Audible sound, yeah. So some sort of transduction mechanism between electromagnetic waves and pressure waves in air. Okay. You've lost me a little bit, so maybe you'll have to walk through his paper here, or at least what he's proposing. Okay. The paper sort of split up into two different parts. The first part is an analysis of the New South Wales fireball, basically saying a lot of people observed it, of those observations, like the visual observations, many heard something as well. Therefore, generally, it's credible that people heard something from this meteor. Okay. Then he goes on to say that he believes the fireball gave off 
electromagnetic radiation. So you have your electromagnetic radiation spectrum, which includes light at the very, very, very high frequency end of it. Includes microwaves, like used to heat up your food. And this, like x-rays, could there be x-rays coming off of this? Uh, yeah, x-rays, the same electromagnetic radiation used for your cell phone to send long-distance calls. Okay. But he's saying, so if you take the frequency down to the lower end of the spectrum, down to the extremely low frequency. Okay, what range is that? We're looking between 30 hertz to 30,000 hertz. Okay, that sounds, I know a little bit about the human ear because I have two of them. Yep. That sounds suspiciously like uh, the range of frequencies that you can hear sound in. Exactly. What he is saying is that through some mechanism, which we can talk a little bit more about, it's still a little fuzzy, but through some mechanism, this meteor entering into the atmosphere, it's giving off this electromagnetic radiation at a frequency that corresponds to the audible frequency range that's coming down to the observer who's watching it, and it's being transduced by things around you and turned into audible sound. Okay, what does transduced mean? Transduced means that you're taking energy in one form and converting it into energy of another form. Okay, so is that like how with a speaker, you're taking electrical energy, putting it into a magnet, and then that magnet moves the cone of the speaker, which produces like an audible sound? Exactly. Yeah, speaker is a transducer that takes electrical energy and turns it into pressure waves. Okay. Audible sound. So is it possible that what he's describing here is actually similar to how a speaker even works? Or is there a different mechanism going on? Well, so like you were saying with a speaker, you take an electrical signal and you move, you use it to engage a magnet and it moves a cone back and forth to create the pressure wave. He's doing some, he explains it in a slightly different way. He says this electromagnetic energy is heating dielectrics around a person. And as something heats up, you know, the air expands, and then as it expands, it pulls energy away from it, so it cools down, and so this repeated motion creates pressure waves. Okay, so recapping and asking questions because I still don't understand some of this. Yeah. So you're saying that this meteor is exploding in the atmosphere, giving off these electromagnetic waves. The ones that are in this audible frequency range come down and they transduce into dielectrics around me, so I got what transduce is. What is a dielectric? Like, would I have dielectrics near me or on my person that would make these sounds? Yeah, so a dielectric is something that's generally, you could say a dielectric is something that's not conducting. So on you right now, every human, your hair would be considered a dielectric. The fuzzy sweater you're wearing if you're cold and you're wearing a nice fleece sweater as you listen to this podcast, that's a dielectric. If you're watching a meteor shower outside underneath a tree, the leaves would be like a dielectric or the grass around you. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So he's saying that basically you're doing like electromagnetic heating of these elements. And so you could imagine if the light on this is pulsing at a frequency that's between 30 to 30,000 kilohertz, that would be heating these things up at 30 to 30,000 kilohertz. 30, ki- 30 kilohertz, you mean? Yes. Okay. 30 kilohertz. Right. Whoops. Slip the tongue. Um, they're creating these pressure waves that are in the audible frequency range, which you then hear as like this hissing sound. Wow. So these things just heat up and just through their interaction with the air, it's it's making a little sound. Yep. And because it's kind of like a random profile of this wave, it sounds like static, like the way that static on your TV sounds. Yeah. Similar to that. 
It's like it's like white noise, right? Basically. I mean, technically white noise has the full frequency spectrum in it, but yeah, it's like creating this hissing noise because it's sort of this random fluctuation of frequencies. Okay. That okay, wait, stop right here because this is actually really crazy. I I just I'm saying like, oh yes, okay. Thank you for informing me. But actually I'm totally blown away by this. <laughs> it's pretty nuts that like this random A that a meteor would be giving off this very low frequency radiation. And then that it would be heating things up around you that you could hear and creating this hissing sound. I know. Well, and it's kind of, it's almost still has me a little bit disbelieving. Like, was this paper received well? Is is this theory correct? Because he just said that that's his theory. Did he do an experiment or? That is a great question because this is where it gets juicy. Oh, man. There's always juice in your stories, James. They're juicy. I just like the juicy ones. Okay, so, I'm excited. The thing that I'm missing in his paper this is me personally, in this 1980 paper from Nature, is he mentions experiments, but he doesn't really give much of a methodology. Okay. And he just says, essentially, that experiments confirm this. <laughs> no citation. He is the one who's doing the experiment. And he's published a lot of papers on this, and he's often just citing his own experiments. So I dug a little deeper, and... It seems like it's been hard for other people to confirm his experiments. Is that because he hasn't really published how his experiments are done? Or have they tried to set up as close to what they know his experiment is and they can't reproduce? I'm not sure exactly why. I think if I were trying to recreate his experiments, I would find it difficult. Just I haven't looked at all of his papers. So I don't want to be misleading. And I'm not trying to discount Dr. Kie in any sort of way. Just as an initial investigation in doing this podcast it would be difficult to try to recreate his experiments. He did some stuff with electrostatic fields and came up with an explanation saying if you take an electrostatic field of such and such strength and you put it around a person at you know this level, it's been shown that they could hear that. It would create some sort of audible sound for them. And it gets into a very complicated argument. The meteor would have to be exploding with this much energy and it would have to create this resonant cavity with the <laughs> Wait. magnetic field of Earth at the same time to you know to create more resonance and strengthen it and okay. it gets kind of tenuous. There's a lot of caveats to yeah. what he's describing. Okay. It's and like would have to be a very perfect scenario for someone to hear this. Exactly. Okay, wait. You said that he's talking about electrostatics, the experiments he did with electrostatics. Is that sort of the way that if you're standing under one of those high voltage power lines, you can hear the electricity running through it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah, zzz, when you hear the zapping. Yeah. Is that similar? Do you know? Well, I'm not sure exactly what's happening there. I think you have, I don't know exactly what's happening there, but I think what he is talking about more that if you have this meteor that's exploding and it's creating a very strong electric field, it's measured in volts per meter, he's saying that this electric field would be present like across your body and that would induce Oh, okay. So just the difference. your body. Just the difference in like electric potential across the distance that you can sort of hear things yeah, would, would cause some sort of sound somehow. Yeah, because I think in the case of power lines, what's happening is there's some local event that's happening along the power line that's actually creating pressure waves, like sound waves from that, that you then hear because you're just close by. Well, is that phenomenon similar to the transducing thing that we're talking about here? I don't know. But I'm going to look that one up for our next episode yeah, for next, Clarity. Next week on The Paper Boys, tune in to listen about electrical wires. <laughs> for a brief time before we talk about something else. Actually, skip that episode. It's not going to be good. <laughs> it's going to be great. It'll only just be about two minutes long. <laughs> um, 
That's a good question. I'll look that one up as a dutiful paper boy. Okay, thanks. So where it gets really juicy and I think really interesting actually is that last February, so February 2017, a group of scientists published in Scientific Reports, so that's nature.com slash scientific reports, very well-respected publication. It's like an offshoot journal of nature? Uh, I believe so, yeah. It might be like a quicker path or like slightly shortened papers. Um, So this group from Sandia National Laboratories, the Astronomical Institute of the Czech Academy of Sciences, put together a paper entitled Photoacoustic Sounds from Meteors. Okay, so photoacoustics now as opposed to electrophonics before. Exactly. Okay. Which is interesting because the light spectrum is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, so photoacoustics now, does that just mean it's more specific, like what you just said? It's just the visible light aspect of this that's causing sounds? Yeah, exactly. Okay, why would that be? Because these meteors are very bright when they burn up. Right, but are they brightest in visible light or are they brightest in some other spectrum? Uh, that is a very good question. What spectrum are they brightest in? It just almost seems like it's a step away from the general answer to this problem. It's more a step towards what you would think just empirically. I mean, I haven't read the paper. You can tell me if you think this sounds more legit or if this is better received in the community. So I think they, from what I understood reading the article, they were trying to come up with some sort of explanation where the theory and simulations and experimental evidence was more consistent. Okay. So they did some experiments with this too then? Yeah. What was really nice in this paper is they do a great job outlining the theoretical side, the simulation side, and the experimental side. (laughs) Okay. Like I just said. Okay. But yeah, so they did a really cool experiment, I thought, where on a table, they made sure it was electrically isolated. They had different materials, so different dielectric materials, so things that just don't conduct. They had things like black felt, roof tile, a synthetic wig to mimic human hair. Oh, whoa, that's cool. Yeah. And then they got a light source, which they modulated using a signal. So they changed the brightness, going bright, dark, bright, dark, bright, dark. The signal that they used to modulate it was actually recorded from cameras that recorded a fireball. Oh, wow. So they're actually simulating what the brightness of a real meteor fireball would look like. Yeah, yeah. They had open shutter photography of a fireball taken in the Czech Republic. There's the Czech Fireball Network that records this. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Sounds like a network I want to be a part of. Pretty intense name, right? And so from that, they were able to get essentially, you could graph it over time and the illumination intensity. Okay. Now, is that variation of the light, is that in some sort of audible frequency? Like the the frequency at which the light is varying? Yes. And so for those of you who are listening who are familiar with the Fourier transform, it's a mathematical technique that lets you look at the frequency content of a signal. So by taking the Fourier transform of that intensity plot, they could see that there is a lot of frequency content in the audible frequency range. So between 30 to 30 kilohertz. Wow. So it's the same mechanism as the electrophonics that they're proposing here, that it's an electromagnetic wave, in this case, visible light, that's going and transducing into these dielectrics. Mm-hmm. But it's, the, it's more the modulation of, of the energy going into it that's causing the sound rather than the wave itself being at a certain frequency. E- yes. Well, so essentially, 
if this answers your question, the light is heating up the surface of these dielectrics. Okay. And so what they did for the experiment is they took that material, they had a light, they drove that with that time recording of the fireball that they recorded, the illumination intensity. So if the fireball was really bright, they'd essentially be driving the LED brighter. As it dimmed, the LED would dim. So over a period of about 10 seconds, that was how long this fireball lasted. Right. Uh, you could imagine this LED is flashing just like the fireball did. Okay. And then they had a microphone in there as well that could measure the absolute pressure waves, the audible pressure waves. Okay. And playing it back, you could hear it. Really? So it lined up with what the waveform of the, of the light looked like? Yep. That's really cool. So far that they could actually even play songs. What? <laughs> they could play and modulate songs in from the microphone. You could actually kind of hear it. Which I thought Wait, was just really funny that they did that's that. That's crazy. Wait, so they had this microphone. Did they ever sort of go into this room and put their ear up to it and see if they could, if it was loud enough for them to hear? Well, not really because this was a very small isolated experiment. So they had a little dome around it to isolate it from external noise. So it was maybe okay. like a two foot little half dome that covered it up. Okay. And they couldn't really hear it outside that. It, it, it was quiet and they had to use a really sensitive microphone. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. But my hypothesis is that if you were in a quiet room and you mimicked the conditions, maybe you could. Because I think they were trying to create intensities that would be similar to what the meteor would be. Okay. I mean, that's really cool. It, it'd be interesting to see a paper where they really reproduce the conditions. Like they have a person sitting in a room with about the level of ambient noise that you'd expect when you're sitting outside stargazing. And the then, same amount of light illumination. Right. Make sure that the, the incident power of the light is about the same as what you'd get from the meteor that's that far away. And then see if, you know, their frizzy hair causes a sound or something. Yeah, that would be awesome. You recruit a diverse group of people, some with no hair, a lot of hair, something like that. Yeah. Wear different sweaters. Yeah. Wait, I'm, I'm kind of curious. This is a complete aside. But I've been, I feel like I read a couple of years ago about this group that was able to transfer Wi-Fi through light bulbs Mm -hmm. like they were somehow transmitting the information just through the light in these bulbs is that sort of the same type of thing using just a light wave modulating in the same way that you would modulate like a radio wave to send music to a radio you could the modulation technique is the same yeah with that work they're basically blinking the led so fast that it's imperceptible to the human eye so as long as you're blinking it faster than about one kilohertz the human eye can't perceive it. But if you have a light sensor that's sampling it very, very, very fast, uh, it has the ability to see when it's on or off. Interesting. So if this meteor is flashing at above one kilohertz, you can't really see that modulation. No. You just no. end up hearing it through this transduction. Exactly. Yeah. That's crazy. And so I thought it was an interesting experiment. They did, you know, what's really amazing about a lot of these researchers across all the different fields is when they can take a very complex problem like that and really break it down into a way that's easy to test using the scientific method. There's nothing conclusive. They don't dismiss Kie's findings or anything like that. But Well, it sounds like his findings weren't necessarily wrong anyway. Um, he just sort of had the theory or the mechanism slightly wrong where he was saying it must have been these waves in the kilohertz region, whereas it's really what these researchers are saying is it's not those waves, but it is the same way that the sound is getting produced. Yeah. And 
there might be something in the physics of how it's actually transduced. Like it may be really hard for a low frequency signal electromagnetic wave to be transduced and absorbed, but much easier for an optical signal. I see. Or, yeah, so sort of the way that you need different sized antennas to receive different types of radio waves. Yeah, it just wouldn't absorb the low frequency. Yeah, like maybe a piece of hair isn't big enough or, or small enough. I don't know. You, you'd know better. Maybe a piece of hair isn't big enough to catch waves that are that low frequency. And that, yeah. And so that they, in their simulation, they're able to do what's called like ray tracing, I believe. It's a little out of my domain. But okay. and they're able to show that a piece of hair with a certain thickness would actually heat up from these types of irradiances. Of the photoacoustic ones? Yes, yes, photoacoustic. Okay, okay so they've got, some, they've got more solid evidence of this being the case than Kie did. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. That's really cool. And yeah, yeah. And so coming back to that initial live science article, they basically only talked about Kie's results and they didn't mention the new results about the photoacoustic effect. So that's weird. Yeah, and I found several other articles like that as well, but it seems like, you know, it's not just like nail in the coffin, the electrophonics is the end-all be-all. There's still a lot of interesting work in it, and uh, as you can see from this experiment, there's a lot of cool scientific work to be done, and just, you know, nice wholesome science experiments that can be done to learn more. Yeah, this is cool. Well, this is the kind of science that I love, where it's like, it's not hurting or really helping anyone it's just a really cool like you said it's like a pure investigation into a very interesting phenomenon yeah and i think a good question is like well so what what does this tell us yeah who cares why pay money for people to do this yeah but there's a lot of really interesting questions that come from it in that where do these electromagnetic waves come from why is it flashing like this yeah the meteor that's a- when it comes into the atmosphere why isn't it just consistently burning up at a that's what I'm frequency. really curious about is what is causing the frequency that's in that audible range? Like what effect is it as it's rippling through the atmosphere that it's in kilohertz range? I'd be curious to see, you talked about the that Fourier transform where you can see all the different frequencies that are present in that light signal. I'd be curious to see if it really is very concentrated in that audible range or if there's also other ranges where you see big spikes that just wouldn't produce sounds. Yeah, and that's a great question. And really, this is something where maybe you as a plasma physicist need to check it out. That's true. That's what that light is. It's plasma. Yeah. So I only touched on it briefly before it quickly got well over my head into the physics of space plasmas. But I was reading about magnetic spaghetti collapsing and it was pretty crazy. But spaghetti? (laughs) As the... As the different flows of plasma are coming off the meteor, they're interacting with the magnetic field of Earth as well and uh, modulating it somehow. Oh, wow. And uh, it's something I'd be interested to read into a lot more, but I didn't have a chance to dive into that too much before this episode. Yeah, and you know, there are a lot of, you know, on the Saturn episode, we were talking about plasma waves and like that Whistler wave is in the audible frequency, which is why you can hear it. There's a lot of plasma waves that pop up that sort of have these natural frequencies in our atmosphere that are sort of in that audible range. So maybe maybe it does tie in in that way. Yeah, yeah, potentially. And, you know, I just think overall it's really cool that this thing that could be so foreign, you know, as we're just pummeling into the remains of an old comet that passed through Earth's orbit around the sun, any human can go outside and potentially hear a meteor through some very complex reaction that involves plasmas and electroacoustic effects or photoacoustic effects, you know, 
like the science behind it is fascinating. There's so much going on beneath just the surface of what we see. And it's still just an enjoyable experience. Yeah, all of it, all of it comes together into this one sort of beautiful audio visual experience that's completely fleeting. You saw it once and probably will never see it again. I've never seen it. And uh, never, we'll never forget it for sure. Yeah, it's like a once in a lifetime kind of thing. With so much, but there's, you're right, there's so much science behind it. Yeah. It's cool to, it's cool to unlock those types of, or answer those types of questions, I guess. Yeah, and unravel the universe around us. So overall, I think live science didn't quite give hearing meteors a fair shake. It was a little bit one-sided. There's more to it. And I think there's gonna be a lot of more interesting research to come out in the future. Yeah, I mean, let's hope that more stories get written about this kind of stuff. Maybe let's hope that there's a really cool big fireball that doesn't hurt anyone, but that a lot of people hear. Because nowadays with, I mean, you said this one in New South Wales was in the 60s or the 70s. Yep, 1978. No one had phones or cell phones. Now, if something like that happened, we'd probably have tons of dash cam footage. We'd have potentially even a couple Snapchat stories that maybe would even pick up the sound. Put it in the Instagram archive. Or maybe this type of paper will encourage places like the Czech Fireball Network Institute, whatever it was called, to start putting microphones out in remote places to help hopefully catch these sounds. Yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. That's interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to see what it generates. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited for the upcoming meteor showers. Try and catch and hear another glimpse. Yeah, maybe we'll go out and check those out, bring a couple microphones, play it back on Paperboys. We you could heard record it here a live first on Paper Boys. Yeah, we could record a live episode out in out in Joshua Tree. You know, Joshua Tree man, pop some tabs. <laughs> that would uh, be great. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed James's juicy story about these meteors. We'd really love it if you subscribe to the show. If you leave us a review on iTunes, that is like you will honestly make my entire week. I get so excited when I see a review. He, Charlie's not lying. It's true. Yeah, I will, I'll call James in the middle of the night and say, James, we got one more. It's true. He's done it. He's done it. If iTunes reviews aren't your thing, at least just check out our website at paperboyspodcast.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at paperboyspod. We love Twitter. We'll get back to you. We'll probably go nuts and send you a meme. Yeah, we're big fans of GIFs of SpongeBob and dogs. So, Yep, make our day. Hit us yep. up on Twitter or email us at paperboyspod at gmail.com. Join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening.